Well, a very good evening to you. My name's Stuart. If you haven't met before, it's great that uh, we could be together again now. Um, just so you know, um, question time tonight will be through the text line. So um, if you don't know the text number already, it's not in your phone as a speed dial number, um, know that um, on the inside back page of the news, that number's there. And uh, so use that to uh, channel your questions in um, throughout the sermon is fine. Well, tonight we, uh, we begin a two-week series called Christianity and the Environment. And uh, something that I've noticed over the last 20 years or so is that there has been a significant cultural shift where it's become pretty mainstream to be pro the environment. Um, no Roseville dinner party would be complete without a conversation around climate change, uh, renewable energy, coal mining maybe, uh, and the Karingai Council Waste Disposal Program. Okay? Um, <clears throat> back in the day, to be labelled a greenie was like an insult. And now it's morphed to be kind of like a compliment. Kind of like it's good to be a greenie, right? And everyone's driving around, whether you're a Christian or not, you just want to be a greenie. Um, everyone's driving around now with their boots of their cars full of reusable shopping bags. And we're very good at sorting our waste into you know, the blue bin, the yellow bin, the green bin, the red bin, and then the soft disposable plastics is behind the kitchen door at our place anyway. right? So, but we're good at that, right? <clears throat> but here's the thing. I wonder if our good desires to care for the environment are connected in any way to anything specifically Christian. In our worldview, whatever it is. You know, like, is this stuff actually in the Bible? Back long ago, the back end of the 20th century, there was a widely held view amongst environmentalists that Christianity was actually to blame for much of the world's ecological problems. So way back 1967, a very influential paper entitled The Historical Roots of Our Ecological Crisis was written by a guy called Lynn White. And he blamed the Judeo-Christian tradition as the cause of the contemporary ecological crisis because it shaped the way that Western advanced societies related to their natural world. Okay, So here's his conclusion at the end of his, uh, of his paper. And um, although he wasn't much of a theologian, he actually argued that the Bible gave medieval Christians the idea that they should go out and master the world, that they should try and tame it and then use the resources for their benefit. And so the Western Christian world, through the Industrial Revolution and the, and the technological waves that followed, used up the world's resources and ravaged and polluted as they went, comforting themselves with the thought you know what, this world is only a temporary thing. God's going to come back and destroy it all anyway and then take everyone else to heaven. Now, Lynn White didn't quote Genesis in his article. Actually, didn't quote many parts of the Bible at all. But he had in mind, I think, verses like the one that we read from Genesis 1.28. God blessed them, that is the human beings, and he said to them, Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every other living creature that moves on the ground. And a first quick glance at that passage looks like a license to view creation as a thing to be conquered and mastered, used, and then dumped. Perhaps White, and certainly the many others who jumped on board his train, maybe they had a point. What if a Christian worldview 
unlike, say, a Buddhist worldview, which you know, posits a divinity under every rock and you know, in every animal and tree, what if a biblically formed Christian worldview turns out to be bad for the environment? Well, today and next week as well, we're going to see that quite the opposite is actually true. A biblically based worldview actually gives us a more compelling motivation to care for God's creation than the motivation that our surrounding culture actually has. We're going to see that simply living Christianly will transform our daily habits and our lifestyle decisions with the result we take better care of the environment. And what's more, we're going to find that we have common ground with our neighbours from which to talk about our faith in Jesus Christ. So that's where we're going. We're beginning with this whole idea of our worldview and we're moving towards our daily practices of, of living and the choices that we make. Okay? So my hope is that the talk tonight and the one next week is really going to sort of stir up a bit of a conversation. I'd love it to be a conversation which continues way beyond supper tonight and goes into you know, like small group during the week or um, the chat around uh, the coffee shop or, or you know, whatever you're blogging online this week. Right. So that's where we want to go. This is supposed to be a conversation. From the get-go, when we open our Bibles, we find that our worldview is being shaped, especially by the book of Genesis. I think it's part of its primary purpose. And it wasn't very long ago that here at St. Andrews we did a series called First Things First. And we looked at the opening chapters of Genesis. So if you've got kind of questions and thoughts about, oh, how do we understand Genesis? What's it all about? Can I invite you to jump on the app or onto the website and go back to that whole series we did not so long ago about Genesis to understand where we're coming from? I'm going to take that as kind of assumed knowledge. To say that all Christians believe that we live in God's good creation and that human beings are integrally part of this creation. Okay, So through whatever means, God is the author and the creator of all that we see and all that we know, anything that we can touch. The world that we live in is his world. And when we talk about the, Christ, the environment, Christians don't buy into the assumption that we're kind of like an accidental blip in a randomly generated ecosystem that is only valuable because it sustains our life. We don't buy that. Instead, Christians believe that everything that exists, animals and oceans and forests and planets and galaxies, everything you can see and everything you can't see, everything that we know and all of the stuff we don't know, all creation belongs to God and it exists for His purpose. In it and through it, God displays his glory. Okay, it is ultimately valuable and significant because of God and of his purpose that he has built into the fabric of his creation. And so that's why the psalm says, as it begins, Lord, how Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Psalm 24, which I think we looked at a bit last week or we, we read, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Our point is this. We can only really make sense of ourselves when we truly understand our place in God's creation. God is the creator. 
He's in charge. He's at the center. He's on the throne. And he is majestic in all the earth. And the heavens display his greatness and his glory. And we are his creatures. We are entirely dependent upon him for our existence, for our, for our being, and for our purpose. And what's more, when we get to this part of Genesis that we're actually looking at tonight, I hope you got it open, when we get to this, we see that what God has done is he has gifted humanity a very special status as the crown of his creation. He declares that we are uniquely made in his image. And so uh, if you look with me at verse 26 of uh, Genesis chapter 1, we read this. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then comes this controversial bit about subdue and fill. So verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and so forth. These verses are the bedrock of our self-understanding. Who are we as human beings? And why do we even exist? What's our place in the cosmos? The answers to those kind of questions rest right here in this part of the Bible. Our absolute value as a human person rests in our bearing the image of God. We are somehow like God such that God actually speaks to us. And his first words to humanity, very first words are, be fruitful, fill and subdue and rule over and so on. Verse 28, God actually speaks to us in language that we can understand. He, he initiates a relationship and his first call is, I want you to flourish. That's my call and it's my command to you. Go out there and fill. And he actually speaks to us with the expectation that we will understand and that we can do what he asks us. We can respond to him. A little later in Genesis 2 verse 7, our affinity with God comes in this kind of description of God breathing a soul into the nostrils of a man. What distinguishes humanity from all of the other animals in creation is not our biology, but our God-given spirit, our souls, stamped with God's imprint. And so we're made in God's image. We are uniquely like him. We're able to relate with him and we are given to rule over the rest of creation on God's behalf. We rule over the fish and the birds and all the living creatures. And with that amazing responsibility comes an accountability. An accountability. And the heart of the issue that we're actually looking at is what does God actually mean then when he says, be fruitful and fill and subdue and rule over? What actually is that? How do we do it? Now, you might think, oh, well, we're never going to get to the bottom of that. Well, actually, no. The text of Genesis gives us an amazing kind of clue and clarity around the meaning of this because what's happened is that the first 27 verses of Genesis have actually set us up 
to know what this verse in verse 28 means. First clue is back in verses 1 and 2 in Genesis. You can flip back and have a look or they're up on the screen there, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and so on. The beginning state of creation is formless and empty. It has no form and no structure. Okay, And it's void. It's a nothing. So it's a blank canvas, but there's no canvas, if you go with me on that. But then there is a sort of a six-day or six-phase creation narrative that actually addresses that initial state. Here's the initial situation, formless and empty. And then we see that formless and void becomes formed and filled. It's all brought to order. It's given shape and then it's populated. Here's me drawing a cartoon of uh, the first six days of creation. And uh, what we see is kind of like, well, on day one, we see this separation of light and dark. Day two, we see the separation of the waters, the waters below and the waters above the sky, which is the way they understood the cosmos. And the, the empty space in the middle is the sky. And then day three, we see that the land and the sea are separated off. So that's the making a form. That's making order out of chaos. There is kind of now a structure. And then day four talks to day one where, oh, because we have light and dark, we will then have night and day and sun and moon and stars. And then day five talks to day two. Oh, now that we have a sky, we'll have birds in the sky. And now that we have a sea, we'll put some fish in the sea. And then God says on day six, okay, now we have land. Now let's put some animals on the land. And then this crowning glory is humanity. And so what we see here is that formless and empty has become formed and filled. You see how it works? All of that is the background which now makes sense of verse 28. This creation mandate that God gives us those who are made in his image, is that we do for creation what God has already done. Just as God did, we are to form and to fill. And that word subdue there seems to be the parallel word to form. Okay? To subdue actually means to give structure or order to chaos. It doesn't mean crush and destroy. Okay? It's more like giving a vine a trellis on which to grow, to give it structure so that it will flourish. And so verse 28 in this greater context of Genesis takes on a pretty different tone now, doesn't it? Ruling over creation that humanity is given to do, it's not about conquering it and crushing it. Instead, it's about working with it to, to give it order and structure and help it flourish and help humanity to flourish and help all things to flourish. This is not to say that the resources of the earth shouldn't be used or, or deployed for our human flourishing, not at all. There's all kind of food that is made for us. There are all sorts of resources that are there to be developed. All of these things are under the rule of humanity. We are, we are managers or stewards who are accountable to God. So with all of this background now, we have added to our understanding of what it means to be made in God's image. We are somehow like God 
And as such, we've got this role now in relation to the rest of creation that somehow mirrors the role that God has taken in creating all of the things. So we rule and we tend and we care for God's creation under his lordship. And so here's the thing. Fundamentally, we actually exist to glorify God in this role of ruling his creation. That's actually what Psalm 8 is all about. I love it that this guy who's just been cruising around on the moon comes back to earth and he says, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. The guy's just been seeing stars like I guess we would never see them. And he sees the greatness of God. So Psalm 8 uh, has one of those great bookend things. We love bookends here at Roseville, right? First one and verse 8, the last one, they're the same, right? Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory in the heavens. But the bit in between those two bookends, we've got the magnificence of God and his creation, but the bit in between is the smallness of human beings. And yet, the remarkable privilege that is given them. So um, we're at verse 3. When I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You've made them a little lower than the angels and you've crowned them with glory and honour. You've made them rulers over the works of your hands. You've put everything under their feet. So in relation to the stars and the planets and the galaxies, the heavens in all their vast array, compared to this amazing majesty, human beings are puny. We're so small. We seem so insignificant. Why would God even bother with us? And yet, he's made us in his image. And we are crowned with honour. And glory. We've been made the rulers over the works of God's hands and everything is placed under our feet. This is an incredible state of affairs that we find ourselves in, isn't it? Here's a little heads up for next week. When we get to the New Testament, the man, what is the man that you think of him in, in Psalm 8, turns out that man is Jesus, first and foremost. And we are included alongside Jesus as the heirs of the cosmos. More about that next week. We see from the scriptures that we share in exercising God's rule over all things. And so we are most human and we are most fulfilling our divine purpose when we are wisely exercising responsibility over God's creation. And you know what? There's actually a profound joy in this. It actually feels good to do what we've been made for. Uh, Kate and I at our place have been doing a little experiment over the last three or so weeks. And uh, we've been trying to make just some little baby steps in reducing our impact on our environment. We've made a little bit of progress. We've managed to... I'm the guy who... I get the wheel out the red garbage bin every week. Okay, that's got the, the, the landfill in it, right? And uh, most weeks, I'm kind of jumping on ours to get it squished down. We have slashed that... We're down to a third of what we used to have. So we're on a roll here, okay? And um, we've tried really hard to reduce the amount of plastic that we use and we have got our 
composting bin up and working. And Karingai Council kicked in 50 bucks to help us buy it. So it's kind of a good deal, right? I'm not boasting about this. We are working from a very, very low base, okay, from where we've started. There are so many more ways that we could learn how to to reuse stuff, how to recycle stuff, um, how to reduce our waste. But here's my point. We're having fun doing it. We actually really enjoy it. It's like a, it's, it's bringing joy to our life. There is something profoundly satisfying and good about trying to live with a smaller footprint. Um, I'm just a little bit worried, though, that I've told everyone about it today and that that's going to take away the joy. <laughs> okay. Like now it's going, oh man, I'm going to feel guilty every time I don't do it right. And you're all going to be looking at me going, see, you didn't do it. Instead of that, though, I wonder what it would be like for us all if, as a Christian community, we just simply encouraged each other to try some new ways of living out our role as God's image bearers. We just said, hey, why don't you give this? We've tried this, it's worked for us, or we tried that and it was really bad. A lot of people have told me, don't put um, pumpkin seeds in your composting bin. Apparently it's bad. So... What if we worked together as a community and said, let's try out new stuff to see if we can do a better job of acting as God's image bearers, the way that we were commanded to do it. And I think for me, it's this recognition that we've been commanded by God to bring order and to fill his creation, to rule over it, that gives extra weight. I mean, obviously, it's kind of a good thing to do, right? To be for the environment, but it's not just a nice thing to do. We've been commanded to do this in Genesis chapter 1. And it got me thinking, wow, are there any other commands in the Bible about you know, how I should look after the environment that God's given us? And in fact, it turns out there's a whole bunch of them, particularly in the Old Testament. But given the time constraints here, I'm just going to sum them up. And I'm going to use Jesus' summary. He takes 613 laws in the Old Testament and he sums them up with these two. You remember there's a lawyer who says, what's the most important laws? This is the answer that Jesus gives. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And as I started thinking about just these two commands... Two very powerful reasons to care for God's creation emerge. First one is, if I am loving God with all of my faculties, that is surely going to cause me to love his creation. Love for God is going to mean, well, wow, his, his creation displays his glory. Surely I'm going to in some way do the best by his creation. But it's going to take me into new places as well as I think about my neighbor's. I'm supposed to love God by loving my neighbor, especially those who are more vulnerable as neighbors. Have you noticed how much more uh, directly the vulnerable are impacted by changes in our environment? Think about the weak, the poor, when you think about a subsistence farmer. The wealthy, like us, we can kind of insulate ourselves from the effects of climate change or pollution. We can afford the higher prices for scarcer resources, but the vulnerable cannot. And so when we care for our environment, when we employ good land care principles, when we protect rainforest or biodiversity, when we keep the rivers and the streams pure with water, ultimately that's an act of love 
toward the most vulnerable of our neighbours. Because polluting the earth actually harms the poor and vulnerable first. That's why love is a great motivation to care for the environment. Love for God and love for our neighbour means we will care. So what we've seen so far is that a biblical worldview gives us a stronger imperative to care for God's creation than a merely secular worldview. Okay? As God's image bearers, as the ones who represent God to the rest of creation, we have a mandate to rule and to bring order on his behalf, which means we treat creation the way that God would, in the way which honours him the most. As we read our Bibles, this isn't just a good suggestion. This is one of a number of commands that God gives us. If the latest science is right, then we really are facing an environmental crisis and action is needed. There are really good rational reasons to act, but there is more. There is so much more with an actual Christian worldview. We've been given such a place in God's creation where we can't ignore it. We can't ignore the issue and say, not our problem. God commands us to act, I think, for the good of all creation. And I think that means that we do what we can do in the spheres where we have opportunity. I'm not saying that we can go and um, force other nations to act in any particular way. I'm not saying that we can shape you know, what multinationals do by you know, whatever you know, turns, their, turns their wheel, right? We can't do that directly. Maybe we can influence them in some way. But what I want to suggest is that each one of us, no matter who we are, actually have a sphere of influence. Actually, we've got an opportunity to live out our God-given roles. Now, if you are happening to be running a company uh, or in a leadership position of some kind, well, great. You know, use your company, your institution, whatever it is, your leadership influence and do the very best to care for God's creation using that as a sphere. But you don't have to be the CEO to make a difference, to wield influence, right? Let's say that you're the guy that runs the photocopying department. Well, you actually get to make choices there, don't you? What paper are you going to buy? What are you going to do with the paper when it's done? How often will you print? Let's say you're the person who gets to order the kitchen supplies. <laughs> right? okay. So you are making choices about a supply chain, aren't you? Where are these things coming from? Who's making them? What's their life like? How does it get here? And now that I've got my kitchen supplies, what about the packaging? And then what about the waste after that, right? So it doesn't matter where you are. You've got some opportunity, some influence, right? If you, if you lead a department, if you teach a class, if you sit on a board, if you sit at the kitchen table, it doesn't matter. You've got influence, right? Use it. Use it for God's glory. And when you start doing that, someone's going to ask you, why are you doing it? Uh, you know, the question that gets asked or has been asked around our place recently. So when did you suddenly become an echo warrior? And right there, you have a brilliant opportunity to talk about Jesus. 
you say, well, look, I haven't really got this whole thing together or not, but it turns out that my faith in God calls me to look after his world. I mean, it's a good thing to do anyway, right? But, you know, there's a Christian angle for me in this too. Well, that's an interesting beginning to a conversation, isn't it? All of a sudden, we're talking about God, but from a place where we both agree. Like, we both agree it's good to take care of the environment, right? So instead of starting off with some argument, some controversy, some crisis, it's like, oh yeah, we kind of agree on this stuff, and now you're telling me that you've got this Christian thing going on. That's kind of interesting. So why don't you try it out this week? Tell me how it goes. Great way to start a conversation. Just wait till someone accuses you of being an echo warrior. It'll work. It's great. So we are God's image bearers. We have the privilege and the responsibility to care for God's creation as his representative. And so we want to do that in a way that will honour him the most. All of creation exists for God's glory. And we get to maximise the glory that goes to God in the way that we cultivate the environment that he's given us. Will you pray with me? Our great God, you are majestic and wonderful beyond our knowing, beyond our ability to comprehend. And yet, you've given us some understanding of that by all that you've made. We look out at the universe and we marvel that you are so glorious. And Lord, we are humbled that you might give us dominion over all that you've made, that you make us in your image and say, flourish, rule. But we pray that you would please give us such wisdom that we would tend your creation well. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.